0: This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate.
1: Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.
0: Across Australia on the community radio network to over 70 community stations around the nation. This is Word for Word. Coming to you from Australia's LGBTI radio station, Joy. Welcome, family and friends, fans and fiends, to today's edition of Word for Word. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I am Benjamin Norris, and it's simply a delight to continue to work on this show for the Joy Network, which has already featured some of the community's strongest voices. In the tradition of this ongoing program, I continue to look at powerful stories and insights into the life and lifestyle of some incredible people. Each week we will chat with those in and around our community who have inspired us, entertained us, but mostly they've made an impact on the queer community of Australia. Today's guest is one of them. Born in Melbourne, this person is a long-standing advocate for LGBTI Victorians and has held leadership positions in the community and government sectors. She has been recognised for extensive community service and in 2003 she received a centenary medal and in 2009 was inducted into the Victorian Government's honour roll for women. She has also been a member of three Victorian government LGBTI ministerial advisory groups and chaired the Ministerial Advisory Committee on LGBTI Health and Wellbeing between 2007 and 2009. Today's guest was the founding CEO of faith-based organisation United Care Cutting Edge and this active member of the community established Victoria's first rural support group for young LGBTI people, giving her a particular understanding of the issues in rural and regional areas. She is a former chair of adult community and Further Education Board, the Victorian Skills Commission, the Youth Affairs Council of Victoria, and former member of the Hume Regional Development Australian Committee. And currently, she is Victoria's first Gender and Sexual Commissioner.
1: I'd like to welcome you, and I'd like to welcome
0: Ro Allen to Word for Word.
1: You know, I came out, you can't sort of say late, because there's no, there's no magical age to, to come out. Um, Other people describe me as a butch tomboy. We're joined in the studio by the Victorian Commissioner for Gender and Sexuality, Ro Allen. I'm not very good at delayed gratification. In fact, I'm terrible at it. In the studio with me, Victoria's Commissioner for Gender and Sexuality, Ro Allen. Good morning. Well, it's just about making people aware that there are trans, gender diverse and non-binary people in the world and in the workplace.
0: It's the commish in the house with me.
1: Now it's a real time... For the gay and the lesbian people to turn into allies, learn how to be an ally, how to be a good ally for the bi, the trans and the intersex community.
0: Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so glad that we finally got you here. You know what's interesting is that I'm about to go to a wedding and the wedding that I'm going to is in Yoroa. Which really? Is really close
1: to a place of your heart. That's where my mum lives in Euroa. Yeah, just uh, just down the road from Violetown. Do you still have your property in Oh, uh, We do. Yeah, it's looking really beautiful at the moment. Uh, blossoms coming out. It's gorgeous. We don't get there as often as we probably thought we would. But, you know, this stage of our life, I mean, this is this is the job. And the job means that I've got to be in Melbourne and all over Victoria. Yeah, right. Yeah, but going to Violettown is, is certainly, you know, a family's mental health escape at the moment.
0: What's interesting about you, and I always get so... I get a little bit of anxiety just thinking about it. Because for your role, you get to go to a lot of events. Being a part of the LGBTI space, we often... Recognized by celebrating. Do you get sick of going to these events all the time?
1: No, no, I don't. I mean, very luckily, I'm an extrovert. Like, I think that's, (laughs) it wasn't in the KPIs of the job description, but it's people, people, people all the time. And, uh, you know, I I know it's very hard on my partner who's an introvert. So, events can drain her energy. They just energize me. So, going to an event like last night to celebrate one year of yes, energize me. And I was out of bed, bang, into it. This is so, you know, there's so much more work to do. You know, we acknowledge that this is this is a triumph, but we can't rest on that. Transgender diverse and intersex and bi and non-binary issues need the focus now. And so it just, it re-energizes you. And it's that little bit of recognition and thanks that does actually push me forward. I think
0: it's hilarious. I was talking to your, I guess your personal assistant, Louise. Yep. So to get you here. She's a bit like a party planner, isn't she? Cause <laughs> She's, she's gonna got to, a lot of things. She's going <laughs> to hate my saying that she's a party Gatekeeper.
1: <laughs> she, she gets really stuck into me all the time. Ben says I'm far too accessible and all those sorts of things. Or if I agree to things when I'm out at an event and she's like, you've agreed to that, but you know you've got five things on that day already. And i was like, yeah, but you'll make it work. You'll, make, you'll fix something. And she does. She magically moves things around and... Here I am.
0: This is an exciting week at the moment, so we're yeah. celebrating yesterday. But overall, if you look back at last year when that announcement was made, have you
1: got a memory that was quite emotional about that time? I've got lots. I've got lots of memories. I think I'm not very good at delayed gratification. In fact, I'm terrible at it. So I was the kid that unwrapped my presents under the tree and then wrapped them up again. So the waiting, (laughs) the waiting killed me, absolutely killed me. And they went on and on and on and on and on before they made the actual announcement. And the moment I remember was obviously the announcement. And I'm really fortunate. Somebody filmed me. So I actually have... For forever, I have the record of me, good or bad. I don't know if you've seen it, Ben. It's I have out, seen it. Yeah, it's pretty out there. And that's that's really it. That's the memory I, I hold. That sort of visceral feeling of first excitement, then relief, then anger. And I think you see it in the video. I go through all of those emotions in about five seconds, and I and I'll never forget that. I it, you know I can so I play that video to people, and it takes them back to where they were. It's like where were you when? And it's gonna be it's gonna be a memory that everybody holds in our community anyway, uh, for a lifetime. Over the last twelve
0: months, because of your position how many weddings have you been to?
1: Well, interestingly, uh, not a hundred. Like I thought, oh, here we go, here we go. Everyone's going to want the commissioner at their wedding, but no, it's it's been it's been really lovely. Uh, really, just gone to my dearest and close friends, and uh, that's been lovely. I've been doing that. Oh, that's interesting, and finding oh, I don't know if I'd do that. So we're planning our own wedding. So we're kind of <laughs> looking at everybody's you know wedding and going oh, that's interesting. That's an idea. Maybe we'll take that. So it's been it's been really lovely. In some
0: ways, when I think of planning my wedding with my partner, like we've been engaged now for six years, so it's a long time coming. We still haven't done it. Spoiler alert! And we're both looking at the culture of weddings and borrowing bits and pieces, but I think essentially it'll just be a party.
1: Well, I think that's wonderful. I, I think you know people saying you know there's some members of our community that have said you know why would you want to get married? It's so heteronormative. But we can queer up marriage like we queer up everything else. And I think I think you do need to critique. Everything that you do around the service Because it, it's your special day I mean, I am a person of faith So we are, we are doing it in a uniting church And that's because Kay and I met in a uniting church But, you know, it'll be very queer I mean, it'll be queer as it'll, It's got drag queens It's got everybody singing and dancing And it'll be a very queer event At the end of the day, it is a party and you know, I've I've married this woman, uh, this lovely woman six times. We have a photo album of all, all of weddings. our weddings as the as the kid grows up, you know, <laughs> and uh she's wearing the buffon, Nobody else has got the big, you know, meringue dress but the kid's in one, you know. How old's your daughter now? She's ten now. Wow She's ten. So she's right she is the wedding planner. She <laughs> she's seriously she can't decide whether she's gonna cartwheel down the aisle or she's gonna throw pedals or we're gonna arrive in a horse and cart or the Dykes on Bikes have offered to drive me there, of course, and or of ride course. me there. It's not drive, is it? Ride the best me there. thing
0: about it, though, of having these six weddings and having her grow up through this time is that she gets to be the flower girl at one of these weddings. Has she been the flower girl? Yeah, she's been
1: the flower girl. Now yeah. she'll
0: probably be the maid of honour by the time <laughs> <laughs> she's, like, progressing that's, up the ranks.
1: That's right. I think she's she's excited.
0: You know, we're all excited. Family's really excited. We're going to get into more of that, by the way. But if we can go back and
1: talk about the origins of yourself. Mm. Where did you grow up in Australia? So I actually grew up in Little Waverley, so in, in Melbourne, and uh, you know went to you know the high school and everything. I came out. You can't sort of say late, but because uh, there's no there's no magical age to, mm. to come out, and you know we saw people do that. I saw people that the coming back out, people coming out at sixty. It's never too late. But I came out at twenty one, so you know gone right through that adolescent stage. And we share that in common. Yeah, well, there I was twenty
0: one when I came out. Twenty one. Yeah, it took me a while.
1: Oh, well, see, I felt that too. But, you know, now you see young people very sure of themselves at a very young age, but...
0: I think sometimes when I see that the younger generation this, these days do come out a little bit younger, two things happen to me. I have like, I think, thank God, and we've come so far. But then I also have a tinge of jealousy. <laughs> do you? Yeah, because I think, oh, I'd love to have been like in year nine and year 10 and having a Dawson's Creek type relationship at school.
1: Oh, that'd be nice. I, look, I, you know, you're possibly right. I don't... I don't think about it too much i mean i did my deb ball ben can you imagine that <laughs> now, I, want, I want the photo i know right Yeah, no it's not going to happen <laughs> no you, photos no, it didn't happen no 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 my mother's the only one she she's in your role but you won't find her she's the only one with a photo of me in a deb dress and i did that for peer pressure but you know i did it with a gorgeous gay guy and we had a lovely night so that was the only you know, me and drag i suppose
0: <laughs> which is amazing what was your relationship like with your parents as you were growing up
1: Look, really, really good, uh, really strong, a very strong matriarch, so mum kind of ran the place, dad came in and out, and um, so I came out to mum first, and she said, I'll tell your father, so that's how that worked. Um, He didn't cope so well, Uh, he had a heart attack and was in uh, hospital for five days. He, He survived, he went on for another 25 years, so... Uh, he bounced back. You know, uh, later I said, it's a bit of a drama queen, Dad. He's like, yeah, a bit of a drama queen. So, Are you joking? With no, you? I'm not. No, no. He had a physical heart attack.
0: So he, that's that's where obviously the saying comes from. It's from your family. Yes,
1: yeah, from my family. And my sister came out and he just didn't have a heart attack. He just went on oh, whatever at that point. Well, you know. that's how you work out your muscles. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So, you know, he, that was extreme. So I don't mean to scare anybody. That, that, but that, that was extreme. That's what he did. He got himself into such a panic attack. He had a heart attack. And how did your mum cope through all of that? Well, so they didn't tell me. They didn't tell me because I wasn't living at home. So they hid that from me until he was well and home and everything else. And they said, oh, by the way, he's been in hospital and he's okay now.
0: As time went on, were you able to have
1: an uh, easier conversation with him about your sexuality? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he went – I mean, if you can imagine that. Okay, so from heart attack to not like head in the head under the sheets, can't even cope with this. Yeah. To – taking my sister and I and our two partners at the time on a holiday in America in a minibus all together in Vegas. I mean, that's the difference. If you can imagine that, you know, 10 years on from coming out to family holiday with your two daughters and their partners. So he came a long way and he came a long way pretty quickly. Are your parents still married? They're still together? Uh, No, dad's deceased. Uh, You know, he didn't ever see me become commissioner. I, I think he would have been uh, immensely proud. I think proud. I think I d I don't I mean he's never he was never gonna march in well look never say never. My mum has screamed through megaphones on the on the steps of parliament for our rights around reproduction and, and I you wouldn't my,
0: have thought that that's what she no, was gonna do.
1: No, yes. no, 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 no. And, you know, being part of P Flag and you know, she's eighty now. She had the um all the yes banners and stuff in her aged care facility and she did the numbers and she rang me and said, Right, I think we're all right. I've locked everyone Ten, down. Locked everybody down, you home. know. <laughs> <laughs> My two daughters want to get married, you need to vote yes. You know, she's a great she's a great advocate, yeah. Growing up, what did your parents teach you? What's something that you walked away from what's oh, something abs- that you learned? Absolutely values around social justice. You know, and that's that's pretty much how I came back to getting data over the line. That everybody's equal that you need to work to strive for that equality. My mother taught me how to do public speaking, so I really just thank her for that because I know some people would rather die than get up and speak literally in front mm. of people. And I've done huge crowds now, so I'm really grateful for that. But I think, you know, all of those those values have come come from my folks. And volunteering, both of them sat me down once. I remember, I'll never forget this, I was probably just about 30 and they sat me down and they said, look, you know, we're really a little bit concerned about how many things you're involved in and, you you know, you volunteer on this and you're on this and on this. And then I just sat and I listened to them all and I went, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Dad, you know, you're the president of the Orchid Club and you're the accountant of the homeless shelter around the corner and, Mum, you sing on three choirs and you're the secretary. And I ran through there and they just went, okay, off you go then. <laughs> You know, and they, and they did. They they really contributed wherever they lived, whatever they did. They contributed into community and and were volunteers. And they were always at the school working bee. You know, they're always doing that stuff. And um, they didn't always have a lot of money to put in, but they put their time and effort and energy. And so I think that's something that you know I think I, I've taken on.
0: It's fascinating when you talk to people, especially like this, and especially to where you've gone in your career. You find the building blocks early on, and I think that your parents' belief in community was really evident. That's how you got to being where you're oh, I now.
1: I mean, I get to do Ben, you imagine, I get to do really special things in this role. One of the things that I will take away one day, when I'm thinking and reflecting back, was I was able to give a certificate to a volunteer. There are so many volunteers that go out and visit LGBTI seniors and elders in our community. And there is a, a trans woman named Annabelle who lives in uh, a nursing home in Violet Town. And my mother visits her. She's one of her visitors. And so she organized me, my mum organised me to come up to Violet Town and launch Annabelle's poetry book. You know, when your mum says you're coming to do this, you just it always prioritizes it and you. yeah So it was a Friday night a couple of weeks ago and we launched the book and, and the aged care facility asked me to hand the certificate out to the volunteer and of course it's my mum. And it was really special. She kinda of blew it off and went, Yeah, yeah, whatever. But That's where I learned. That's why I'm the Commissioner. Because, you know, she's 80 and she's still visiting. And she's visiting, you know, a trans woman who has boxes of these poems under her bed. And she's got them out. She's read them all back to her. They've picked them. They've made them into a book and launched this book. And they've reprinted the book now. And 20 community people came to the launch. And Annabelle cried. And special.
0: It doesn't matter what age you are, when you can validate and acknowledge your parents in that way.
1: Yeah, it's so lovely. It's and so do it lovely. publicly, yeah.
0: My mum got sent into the Big Brother house when I won the show at the end, before I got released into the general public. And I wanted to say to her, you know, what you taught me was valuable, and I value what you taught me. But I just cried the whole way through because it's it's a powerful moment. Oh, it is. And it we is. rarely get to acknowledge people yeah. in platforms like that. Yeah. But did you cry?
1: Um, I oh, look, I think my mother would have been really embarrassed had I cried. I got that, you know, that, that pre-cry, yeah, the pre-cry lump in your throat and she shut me down. She could see what was going to happen, so she just shut it off. <laughs> <laughs> took the mic and just took over.
0: I'm an emotional nightmare, so as you tell me that story, I already am emotional. Yeah. How would you describe what you were like as you were a kid growing up?
1: Oh, look, um, other people described me as a butch tomboy. Um, I was a bit of a rebel, but I was one of those nerdy kids as well, I was like a a rebel nerdy kid, so I wasn't up the back of the oval you know, sort of kid, but I was doing music and I was doing a lot of um, social justice stuff, you know, through the United Church, so I was um, part of the South African support group because we had apartheid back then and prison task groups, I was visiting folks in prison when I was about 14, 15, stuff like that, so I was a rebel with a cause and uh, yeah, so when, when I sort of came out it was like all my friends were, you know, into those different cause, social justice causes too. So, I became the latest social justice cause really, which was quite funny.
0: Interesting. So, did you enjoy the whole school experience?
1: Oh, no, it was awful. You hated it? Was awful. it. Well, I mean, I had, I had a lot of friends in different groups and, you know, I didn't fit in any, I didn't feel like I fitted in any of the groups. So I just moved from, you know, the music students to the math students to the back of the Oval kids and then i just moved around a lot but i didn't actually ever feel at home in one group
0: i think for me going through school like i was marginalized in lots of ways but i think it's because i couldn't help like i was just a very flamboyant person as you can imagine yeah i'm not the blokiest man going around but you know people did pick on me for that sort of stuff how did you cope with people maybe pinpointing or calling out your
1: gender expression uh look ignored it mostly it it had an impact no question it had an impact you know bathrooms were an issue from a very young age about which bathroom i went into and uh so that was probably the, the biggest issue trying to find you know accessible bathrooms for, for you know someone who didn't look like a girl really isn't that weird though like it's such a topical thing at the moment yeah but again
0: this is like how your experiences that you had growing up has really been the building blocks for
1: those topics. Oh, ab- absolutely, you know, and it's a very shared experience from butch lesbian right through to trans mask. Over your life, if you look at the word queer,
0: are we just starting to reclaim that, do you think?
1: Oh, absolutely, and I'm in the process of, of helping our community try to reclaim that. So at the moment, government uses LGBTI, and that's in a real acknowledgement that our elders find the word. Something that's that they've grown up with that's very derogatory. If I use the Q, I try to always acknowledge in a very public space. I try to acknowledge the history of Q. I've done some work with the aged care sector recently, and I put a whole slide up explaining Q and trying to get people a bit more comfortable with Q in that space. Obviously, if I'm working with minus eighteen or Gen Y or uh, Y gender or any of those other groups, or I'm talking into a youthful space, if I don't use the Q. Someone inevitably will come up to me after and say, "Commissioner, you're erasing my identity." So I think when I do training and when I do presentations, I'll I'll put it in there, You'll but I'll tailor expo- it a little. I'll tailor it and I'll explain why we, uh, you know, why it needs to be explained. Really,
0: what was your first impression of queer culture like? So when you were growing up, what was what did you think of queer people?
1: Oh, that we were awesome and fabulous. I suppose. Um, you know, in the very beginning, I you just you just have what for me it was Ellen DeGeneres and the coming out show, and who else was around? Um, not a, not a lot of Australian role models in the space.
0: Uh, it's actually really strange because if you look at it, there's Mark, as in Bob Down. Yep. you know that was a person who was in the media, but we certainly didn't have queer role models to look no,
1: to. No, no. Um, Karen Phelps, who was the you know for me, who was. Um, Australian um, Medical Association chairperson, and she was being absolutely hammered for being a lesbian, just doing her job, nothing to do with queer issues, just just for being a lesbian in that leadership role. I was really lucky. I met queer people within the United Church, so Reverend Dorothy McRae McMahon, so I thought she was awesome. When I came out, my community was a place called Mulcahy's, which doesn't exist anymore, which is now developed and you're looking at me blankly so you have no idea I'll, exp- I'll give you a cultural history to a Ben. Marquise was a, a bar in Melbourne where we did country and western line dancing so I lived in the city and did country and western line dancing and I moved to the country and came back to the city to do this and you know I really missed that but that was a community of queers that were just really open welcoming fantastic there was there were certain rules around it you know if somebody asked you to dance you needed to accept the dance and you know it was really nice.
0: If you have a look at, like, growing up can be difficult for everyone, what would you say was some of the biggest hurdles that you faced growing up?
1: Well, coming out, for me, you know, I had, I had a blissful childhood, really. Um, I had lots of love, lots of support, yeah, great friends and family, so that was that was pretty cruisy. Coming out was probably the first big hurdle for me. After childhood, that was really, as I said, in you know, my 20s, I think.
0: What was the first interaction or knowledge that you had of queer people?
1: Oh, look, it's probably Mardi Gras, to be honest, on television, and in those kind of images. So pretty flamborant sort of images. Mm. Individual people, Melissa Etheridge again, sort of the American music people that I listened to, Katie Lang, those are the sorts of, you know, that's what I thought you had to be like. And then getting to know real LGBTI people. And I was really lucky. I was at very early. People spotted me. I mean, you know, like way, way, way before I spotted myself. So people who were five or six years older than me, you know, tapping me on the shoulder and saying, you know, hey – are you a lesbian? Pretty much. Even though internationally as well, like, I'll never forget that. I was I was working for the National Council of Churches and I went to Korea to the Christian Conference of Asia and one of the interpreters was a lesbian and she said, hey, do you want to come out? And we went out to, and I, look, I, was, I wasn't even out to myself hardly, let alone anybody else. And um, I was at the opening night of, you know, the very first gay and lesbian. I, doesn't, I don't even think it was LGBTI. Mostly gay actually, club in Seoul ever opened. I was wow. there on opening night, and it was knock on the knock on the door, slide the little window. she said something in, in uh, Korean and um, opened the door and we went in and it was really like, like a different world. a different world. and so i got I got to see an international perspective at a really young age as well, and I'll never forget that too, because we we can never take for granted the liberties and the freedoms that we have in Australia.
0: Because you hadn't come out to yourself. And people were acknowledging your
1: sexuality before you were ready to. Was that a hard experience? Oh, it was really affirming. If you look back on it, it was really affirming. It was sort of scary. Yeah. And they wouldn't, I mean, they would kind of just call you names that you knew. It was that code, you know, like uh, calling you family and stuff like that, which not everybody understands the code, you know, the secret code and the, the, you know, the secret handshake and all the things that kind of went on back then. But, you know, you got indoctrinated to the to the to the language and the code and and uh that was kind of it was really lovely to have to have older people in the community and f- for me I was in a faith community so having those people support me in that journey and give me so many opportunities see I was not ready for it like I think people
0: would acknowledge my sexuality before I knew what it was so it always seemed like I'm yeah, not okay. I'm not gay you know, so I w- wasn't feeling like I was included. I don't think any queer people or gay people tapped me on the shoulder and was like, it's okay, there's a family. It just, I felt isolated. Oh, that's awful. So I was like, there was no strong role models or people like that around that mm. age. But again, I'm a weirdo. I'm a bit of a freak. I didn't go through puberty till I was 18. Oh, wow. So I was really delayed. But for me, it meant that I didn't really understand my gender identity very well or my sexual identity Mm. but my gender identity that was being seen by people made people assume that I was gay from like the age of 12 yeah right mum would be like just if you weren't so loud at school you probably wouldn't be picked on as much because you're just drawing attention to yourself but in ways I think what happens to us as we're growing up means that we learn the tools on how to cope oh absolutely
1: yeah absolutely
0: so what age would you have been at than to have friends that were also in the LGBTI space. Like, when did you start to make friends that you could trust? And well, first girlfriend. How old were you when you had your first girlfriend? Uh, Twenty-one. <laughs> oh, what? A, did you have a first boyfriend? Did you have any boyfriends? <laughs> no,
1: not one. <laughs> I know. I see. You a late starter. I'm a late starter. Okay, good, right, good. Let's just say I caught up quickly.
0: And who was your first girl? No, we don't want to
1: talk about her. But she Pat- was. Look, she's still one of my very good friends. Oh, how really? lesbian is that? Yeah. That's yeah, so yeah, lesbian. Yeah. I went to her wedding. That's one of the weddings I went to. I went to her wedding. Fabulous. Yeah, yeah. She's got a lovely partner, wife. So, how long were you with her for? Uh, f- oh, see, i really bad. This is when you start Make testing me. Okay. When you start testing me on time, uh, This and then, you know, she'll ring me up and go, it wasn't that long. And I'm like, well, I feels like I'm going to say four years. Yeah, right. I think we actually lived together. We did the whole, you know, cohabitation thing. Uh, How quickly did you move in together? Oh, just stereo- embarrass- embarrassingly early. Yes, yeah, the stereotypical like, yes, 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 yes. Did you buy a cat?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Don't you hate being stereotyped as well? Like I'm no, we didn't so buy rude when I say this to you. We didn't buy a cat. Okay, so
1: that was that was all good. But you definitely had a membership to Bunnings. Uh, absolutely, membership to yeah. Bunnings. Yeah, no, we rented a place in the in the country area, and that was, was really great. quite hard living in the country at that time. But there you go, still good friends.
0: How old were you when you decided to move out into the country? Because, like, you've spent quite a bit of
1: time out there. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Look, quite young, you know, they're 21 in age. So, um, we moved up to Shepparton. And, you know, I I was overseas and I was challenged about rural youth culture. And so, when I got back to, to Melbourne, I took a job in Shepparton for 12 months, which ended up being 15 years. Wow. What was that role? I was a youth worker for the city of Greater Shepparton.
0: Fifteen years.
1: Yeah, I know. I what know. did that job teach you? Ah, oh, everything. I was certainly persecuted uh for being in that role. I mean, I ran the very first rural support group for same sex attracted kids at the time. And so that's when I really saw the hatred really, really? hit and the discrimination and getting lemons thrown on my roof and I was physically assaulted and car was graffitied and all that sort of stuff that happened during that time.
0: How did you cope through that experience of being living in a regional area and being alienated for your sexuality and your gender? Like what coping mechanisms did you put into place for
1: yourself? Friday afternoon, you get in the car and you came down to Mulcahy's and you danced all night with the queer community. And it was like a battery pack and you stuck it in the wall and you charged up. And then on Sunday night, I would go back. Oh, and we danced Friday and Saturday night, and it was free entry back then. And uh, and we just get a full weekend of community, and then you'd go back and keep going because it was so important. And I and I've often thought about leaving, but. Who was going to take the space? And, you know, starting a group in Shepparton meant, well, there's nothing in Mildura. There's nothing in Warrnambool. There's nothing. So I became the chair of the Youth Affairs Council of Victoria, and we developed what's now the Hay Grants, which under both uh, both governments, coalition and, and Labor government, has funded for the last 10 years. And now there's multimillion dollars worth of support for LGBTI young people in rural Victoria.
0: Well, also, I think all of this experience has given you a language to be able to do, like, the roadshow that you've been able to take out to regional areas and understand that language. So it sort of all sort of played a role. Oh, absolutely.
1: And absolutely. if you look at Pride Pride Cup Australia and you look at that, you know, going out to Shepparton, is that a really proud moment for oh, you? Oh, yeah. Like, st- like – you know, I said to them. I mean, I'm I'm standing behind a microphone, looking out at the football oval in Shepparton. You know, this, this is this isn't this was a building where I'd been, you know, physically removed from the public toilet fifteen twenty years before. You know, all this sort of stuff, and I'm back there, and I just took a moment. And I said, you know, this is incredible. If you'd told my fifteen year old self, not well, fifteen years ago self, that you'd be standing here at a pride cup in Shepparton with the mayor wearing an LGBTI scarf, you know, a rainbow scarf. Being accepted but being celebrated. Being ce- being celebrated. And you're the commissioner. Like, <laughs> you know, from youth worker to commissioner, I would have said you were just tripping. And uh, and that's – hopefully that story is really encar- – I mean, it, you know, young people have told me that's a really encouraging story because it's not perfect for young people in Shepparton or in Horsham or Hamilton or anywhere else. But they can see that journey and they go, well, there's hope and – that's the stuff that keeps me energized.
0: It's a good question to ask you at this point. If you could go back and actually give some advice to 12-year-old Ro Allen, let's yeah. just say Row walks through the door as a 12-year-old right now, what advice would you give her?
1: It would definitely be, it gets better. And watch out, you are destined for commissioner for gender and sexuality. You're going to get to have the best time. You know, you have had to work hard to get there and there's going to be a whole lot of people that have a crack all the way along, but you're going to come out the other end, you're Oh, and because my twelve-year-old self wouldn't have listened. Like <laughs>
0: that's what I was going to say. What does your twelve-year-old
1: self say to that? Oh, go away. Oh, look, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Gonna that's just never going to happen. You know, I um, I made a I made a suicide pact with my fifteen-year-old self. It was really bad, and you know, I can remember thinking, you know, this is my life's awful because I was probably coming to terms with my my identity. I went through a conversion therapy. You know, that was a really difficult, difficult thing. So I was 15, 16, and I had those suicidal ideations. And I remember, and I've written it down, and I've still got it. I've got a piece of paper that is pact with myself. I was 15, and I wrote it down, and I said, right, okay, I'm giving this another 15 years at 30. If it's still this terrible, I can call it quits. But I have to give it another 15 years. Anyway, I had the biggest 30... Birthday, you know, and I had, you know, you are thirty, so you got the choices about yeah. what you spend your money on. And it was—I can remember thinking, "Am I going to buy a fridge? Am I going to have this party?" Well, I, bu- I had the party. I booked a yeah. band. You won't know this band either. Band that's right on. No, no. Tell me what the band is. I never know. Blue House. No, I never heard of. It. Yeah. <laughs> They're a huge lesbian band in Melbourne. Yeah, see, you have to look it up. Play a song. It's just—it's—it's it's a great band. So I got—you know—I got the band. I got mm. the party, and I just—you know—I I knew at twenty that I wasn't gonna. Cash in the contract, but still, that when thirty came, it was a really special day for me because I'd been through that. It's so full on to think of you because I think of you because I always
0: see you at the different functions, and you're very stoic to me. You're very happy. You're very personable, and I can't imagine your fifteen-year-old self making a pact like that when you have been a leader of social change. But at the same time, it's a real understanding that you can relate to young people mm. because of going through that?
1: Mm. I think but that's what I would say, Ben, to all young people, even if you're at that point, like I was at, you know, and I, you know, I was sitting around waiting for God to heal me and I was wondering why this conversion therapy wasn't working and it was horrific and I wasn't out and I wasn't out to my family or friends or anything and if I can go from that point and be in the role that I'm in now and loving life with a beautiful 10-year-old kid who still likes me, I don't know what they'll do at fifteen. I heard it's pretty bad. You can be shaky when they turn. Might turn a little. Like, bit. Might like turn a little bit and then come back eventually. But then they'll Definitely but, come back. But at the moment, you know, she wants to hang out with me, and I've got a wife to be, and I'm just like, well, wow, imagine if, you know, and you do, and that makes me sad because I think about all the people that don't make the pact mm. or can't hold the pact for all sorts of reasons, and you know, self harm and suicide is a real issue in our community. So it's it's certainly something that. Obviously, I work really hard. You're pretty cool. Oh, thank you, Ben.
0: I think you're pretty cool. When I hear all these stories, I think you might be one of the coolest people I know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that says something about the people I hang out with. No, no. Interestingly enough, if you look back at the ideas of conversion therapy and considering that they still do exist here in Australia, was it your decision to
1: go to a conversion therapy or was it your parents or was it your peers? from no. Yeah, my parents had no clues. Like and, and and they would have been horrified to know I was even there, I think. He, so you
0: elected yourself to go?
1: Yeah. And, you know, there was, again, there was an older guy who was a real um, evangelical in the church. And he'd gone off to this AOG kind of place. And, and, you know, again, people spied me for good reasons and people spied me for bad reasons. And he, he went, oh, yeah, I reckon you're probably struggling with this. And you should come with me to this and he was spot on you know i was at that time that you know, struggling and trying to reconcile that with my faith and my spirituality and and i was really torn but it, it, you know it obviously it, it like i'm i'm grateful i mean it sounds weird but i'm grateful for the experience because i can walk into brave now that the support area with lgbti people and i understand i have a you know, a visceral understanding of what an exorcism feels like. What were the processes that they were using on you to? Well, c- it's an combat? ideology. It's an ideology about being broken, and the and that, and the, I tell you, it's the same ideology in 2018 as it was back then. Wow, it's that you are broken, and that we can heal you, and you know, you you are not your full self, and there are there are explanations, and that you are not born LGBTI, and this is something that's because of something that's happened in your life, or a relationship with your mother or your father, you know. It's the same stuff. If you've seen uh, Boy Raised, you know, it's pretty confronting kind of stuff. Uh, but, yeah, it is happening in Victoria. It is happening in Australia. Maybe not the organized programs that were so around back then, but certainly the ideology is still there. What a horrible language to use to young people to give them the notion that they're broken or that there's something wrong with oh, them. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So it's so important that we speak in to that community, and which is why, you know, in the last three years I've run multicultural, multi-faith Forums. We've run three forums and we've invited all the denominations to come. Last week I met with the Catholic Diocese and we're going to do an LGBTI People of Faith Forum with them, which will feed into their plenary in 2020. And, you know, it's really important that I have those dialogues. And I do sit down with Dan Flynn from the Australian Christian Lobby and have those conversations so that we park what we can't agree on. Dan and I, and we talk about the things that we can agree on, mm. which is self-harm and suicide of young people. And, you know, he's open to talking about that. I mean, fundamentally, the thing, the, the thing that, that I always try to remember around conversion therapy stuff is sometimes the people doing it are queer. So that can be part of it. And even if they're not part of the community, they still fundamentally believe they're doing God's will, even though they're doing very... Dangerous things for our mental health. They don't. It's not like somebody walking down the street and actually targeting you and beating you up. These people actually think they're doing you a service. So it's, a, it's so it's a different conversation, mm-hmm. I suppose. I I have the grace to go to that the, the well of graciousness around that. Otherwise, I couldn't sit there and have those conversations.
0: Do you think that we'll ever see conversion therapies completely removed from Australia?
1: I do. I have to have that belief. Otherwise, I wouldn't. You know, keep working in this space. I think people understand the damage that it does and you're already seeing changes so now the groups are saying oh well, we can't heal you but we can help you be celibate so we're already seeing which is not good mm. and not fulfilling and life-giving and god-giving if you ask me but the language is changing well they're not living their best life if no, that's they're what not. they're doing
0: they're not. you know so much of what it is that you do and how you relate to people is by sharing personal story is there anything that's off the table that you go you know what I, i'm not going to talk about that
1: Look, I, I think there's there's not a lot. I think people have interviewed me now and got like you, got Ben. Out. Most yeah. most things. I mean, you know, I'm not sharing my intimate secrets, and I'm certainly not perfect. I wouldn't take relationship advice from me, you know. I w- <laughs> <laughs> we'll ask your partner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, uh, now it's okay. But, you know, when you, when you come out late, you know all those mistakes you're meant to make in dating and adolescence, you're not meant to make them in your 20s and 30s. But we do. We did. Well, I did. Well, you can still – I'm making them in my 30s. Oh, are you okay? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm really delayed.
1: <laughs> no, but I think that Well, they're more something- serious, I think.
0: Yeah, but I think that's fine to be in living your own timeline. You know, like it would be nice if maybe we, as I said earlier, if we had our little Dawson's Creek relationships in our teens, but we didn't. Yeah. And then we got to have them in our 20s. So we're slowly working through. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. You've got 20 years experience in community services. What did you study at school when you first came out of high school?
1: Well, that's an interesting story. I did VCE and then went, oh, I need to just go to the school of life. So I got a university place and deferred for a year to my parents' horror. And never went back, so um, education was a later thing for me, much later, so I just started as a youth worker. i wouldn't I wouldn't recommend this pathway to anybody now. Oh, come on well, qualifications are really important da da da, da but you, you don't get caught up on it. so know. did
0: you ever go back and try and find higher education?
1: Look, I did a diploma when I was actually managing a whole lot of people in mm-hmm. community services, I thought, oh I better have a certificate so I did a p- diploma and then started sort of almost teaching the the subject, so that was it did that fairly quickly. I was um, chairing the Victorian Skills Commission, and I was in charge of one point two billion dollars of government funding. So I thought I'd better go and do the Australian Institute of Company Directors course, and you that's know, a lot of responsibility. Yeah, there's a bit of responsibility. So I've I've done the qualifications and the work that I needed to do along the way when I've got there. So it's been a different, different kind of journey. I um, enrolled in my master's, so skip the degree went into my master's and then I think I picked the wrong one and I got pregnant and I went ah and so I didn't finish my master's either so there you go that's my educational track record but
0: well, look how successful you are <laughs> life university yeah um, it, it's unusual
1: it, well that's right the university of life it, it's unusual to be a um a human rights kind of commissioner without being a lawyer but I think that's it certainly hasn't been a barrier uh last month I got invited by the Chief Justice of the Federal Circuit Court to go and uh, speak to 70 judges around uh, issues for our community that, that, that face them in the court system. So, you know, I think I can, I can do work around what I, what I don't know, I go and learn. Or I think a leader surrounds themselves with people smarter than themselves. So that's that's been my strategy as well.
0: I think that's so powerful to lend on other people. You know, just the other day, a friend of mine was telling me about what it is that I don't do very well. I shouldn't beat myself up over it because what I do do well, I should acknowledge instead of so spending it. my time beating myself up for the things that I just not
1: just mm. not for me. Yeah, I had this conversation with a group of colleagues yesterday. I mean, a different person would make this role different. You know, if a lawyer was in this role, there may be maybe have been more focus on uh, you know legal interventions in some of the work. And I think you know I've made it my skill set. I've worked in the areas that I have experience in, multicultural, refugee stuff, or rural and regional with the roadshow, or queer conversion, because of you know, lived experience in the faith space. Uh, I think you know whoever comes after me will make the role around their skill set, or they're mad if they don't. Mm. And then you draw in people, and the Victorian system, what's really terrific is we have the task force which is a you know lgbti task force which sits in the department of premier and cabinet and it has a justice working group and it has a health and human services working group so I also I'm, I'm not a medical person so i don't begin to understand all of the 40 different very vari- you know chromosome variations for someone who has an intersex variation so i need to bring in the people with the lived experience and the medical knowledge to explain that lean on them lean on them that's that's the important thing and give them a voice. I mean, that's for me that it's about not have, not always being behind the microphone, but making sure that you give opportunities for others. Which is why we've you know established the leadership program. So we're in the second year now. You know, we're taking registrations. I think for the LGBTI leadership program with Leadership Victoria. So we'll see three years of that, and we'll see hopefully an alumni of people that are really diverse from our community that can start to to help them get that voice and uh, and start leading. You know, you've been on lots of boards and part of communities and committees over
0: all of these years, and you definitely have a skill set that has led you to be successful in these environments. You know, what is it that you believe that you bring the most amount of strength to in these roles? I can think of them. I'm already like, respect, okay, Uh, understanding, empathy.
1: Listening, 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 and hopefully that's what people would say. Listening and facilitating, I think, is my skill.
0: Interestingly enough, like with your role here in Victoria, which was created, you know, through the Andrews government, Victoria is the only state that's got your role. That's it. Why is it throughout the rest of Australia that we haven't seen that in New Uh, South Wales, Queensland, West Australia?
1: Look, there's a lot of tyre kicking in the other states. They're watching what's going on in Victoria. Uh, I think there's a lot of the queer community that would like to see a commissioner in other states. I think it may happen. Um, federal opposition has a policy for a national commissioner, um, that may see more state commissioners, but, you know, I, I think I'm completely biased, Ben. I think the role has been incredibly successful, um, for what, what I've been able to lever from all different parts of government. You Are know.
0: you able to have those conversations with premiers of different states and try oh, yeah, and connect with them and say, I have. hey mate, or, yeah, know, yeah.
1: Yeah, I have. look I-
0: at what I've been able to achieve. Yep. And can you see statistics on what it
1: is that you've impacted? How? It is it is really hard to quantify what I do, and I and I get asked that question a lot. And it's you know the outcomes are individual stories about you know the impacts. So you know I can I can quantify things like uh, before the rural and regional roadshow. I mean, people said you know why did you use the chief commissioner of police's bus, and I would make a joke, oh, well, I don't have a budget, I use everybody else's budget, but...
0: You're just saving some money by borrowing someone else's bus? Well, yes, Ben, but it's also
1: very strategic. You borrow the police commissioner's bus, it guarantees that police will turn up at every single event that you do in all the locations, and well, there you go. We went from 100 LGBTI lia- 170 LGBTI liaison officers to 265 LGBTI liaison officers after the roadshow.
0: Well, I think it's strengthening communities. That's exactly what it's doing. It's building relationships and organising a much bigger net behind what it is that you're, you know, creating for the community.
1: That's right. It's trying to embed embed it right across government and right across community.
0: So, what would you say you've brought to the role that you're most proud of? So, you've been in this role now for how how long have you been?
1: uh, Nearly three years.
0: And what would you say you're the most proud of?
1: It's like picking which child you pick up as you run from a burning building. So many things. Uh, Look... Certainly the work on the roadshow and the impacts we've had in 29 towns, the bisexual community, I think we've raised some visibility around bi issues. The work with the intersex community is, is slow but is is moving ahead as well. And just moments, just really great moments that I've been, been uh, privileged to be part of, I think, having now done two retreats for Aboriginal LGBTI mm. community and being invited to those spaces and being called an honorary and just, just for the day and all those things just have been amazing for me to be part of and uh, the multicultural, multi-faith workshops where we were sat down with bishops and really had strong dialogue and conversations and, you know, all those things have been really amazing as well as the corporate work and, you know, the sports area. I mean, I've, I'm just not a sporty person, so to go to you know ice hockey and drop the puck at pride games and flip coins at football games and not even know the rules to half these things i'm an absolute (laughs) athlete on the whole coin flipping thing now you know and roller derby pride games and you know swimming in a blow-up tube with the trans community and the water polo team and like so many people i've met so many wonderful things have happened what's the
0: focus at the moment
1: I think is just finishing up on the conversion work, intersex work, getting a whole lot of things ready uh, for next year uh, around the leadership program. The grants round is out again for sustainability for our LGBTI grants. That's always tricky. It's always oversubscribed. Luckily, I don't have to make the choices around that. smarter people than me that get to read and do all the detail work on that but that's
0: more leaning on other
1: people it's leaning on the other people because i you know i'm very bad at picking winners i just want to give everyone a calm like oprah
0: just looking back and looking at sort of from the ground up how do you tackle signs of hatred so like i guess you've grown up in melbourne but you've also grown up in regional areas once you've been able to see that there's levels of homophobia biophobia, transphobia what ways do you use to tackle those?
1: Look, I think um, reporting it, like if it's to yourself, is really important. Whether you choose to carry it forward, I think even doing something like that is a really powerful thing to do, if you're able to, because if, if nothing else, even if the perpetrator of that violence isn't isn't caught to justice, you've got a record of that. And we can see how many times there's LGBTI discrimination in our community. So reporting it is really important. I always get, like to go to my happy place, you know, uh, on Facebook, the staff can do, you know, enormous posts and they elaborate setups of photos and beautiful writing and might get a thousand likes or something. I put a picture of me, on in my ride on mower in my happy place. And, you know, it just goes viral because I think people connect to that. I think you've got to do the self-care things. So for me, when, when I, if it's, if it's, that sort of homophobic or transphobic sort of violence directed towards me. I deal with it straight up, heads up, report it, deal with it, try to make sure the people that maybe have also been impacted feel supported. And then I do something nice for myself.
0: You go to your happy place.
1: Go to my happy place, which is usually, well, when I'm home in Violet it's my ride on mower because I put the, the earmuffs on and, you know, you, you, you can see the direct impact of your work. Like often I don't see the direct impact of my work, but a mower... Right, You turn around, you can you see, back. you look back, straight lines, it's perfect, you know, and you, you know you did it, it smells terrific, it's fabulous. It's something so simple, but it's something so powerful. You're in control of it. You're yeah. in control of that act. And often in my job, you know, you set things in motion, you, you don't have control over it. You know, you have to let other people control. As a control freak, that's can be really hard. And you don't often see you know, the benefits or the impacts of your work often for, you know, two or three years down the track.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting when you look at the reasons why things happen and how you motivate yourself and how you motivate other people. A weird question to ask is, and someone was talking to me about this the other day, why do you think that drugs and alcohol have been so prevalent within the queer community for so long?
1: I think for our community, we gathered in clubs, you know, we gathered in pubs. That's, you know, now it's a bit different with social media, but much of the culture of our community coming together was in alcoholic venues. Look, I, I'll be working with groups in next year, particularly to look at alcohol use and particularly things that we fund as government around, you know, alcohol. You know, there, there are a number of big parties that you buy expensive tickets for in our community and then people just want to drink the ticket price back. It's like a competition. I think we can lower the ticket prices and have purchasing of alcohol and more responsible serving of alcohol. And that allows a trans guy from Mildura who can only afford 60 bucks for a ticket, Mm. who's happy not to drink, to come down and actually access that event. But if it's a $200 ticket, it's out of the realm of that young fella. So I want to provide opportunities where things can be more accessible to people and there's not a culture around – I'm going to be known as the wowser commissioner. It's not about saying no alcohol, but, you know, why are lesbians smoking? You know, we know the health impacts. They're smoking more than – and bisexual women than heterosexual women. So why is that and what can we do to support a more positive choice around our health? And and people use drugs to change – we know, we know, statistically, people use drugs to change their emotion. And if they're not in a happy place, they'll try and use that They'll use limit. drugs, alcohol, cigarettes to change that space. So, fundamentally, how do we help people get into a happier space to make better choices?
0: Do you think we were set back a little bit with the plebiscite being that Malcolm Turnbull selected to have a plebiscite in Australia and the No campaign?
1: Do you think that there was a massive setback for the queer community? Oh, look, I'll say this. The postal survey was a process we should never have been put through. Our community or any other community, and I would continue to fight, whether it's Aboriginal constitutional referendum question, no other. We have to learn from this experience. There will be generational impacts. There are already going to be. There already is. We lost people. People that were vulnerable didn't make it through. Postal Survey. And I know that. I know people particularly. And so that's a process that the cost of the win, it's bitter. It's bittersweet because it had a huge impact, particularly for transgender diverse by folk and people that had an underlying mental health issue. I mean, as leadership, you know, people who said they're very evolved, they're out, they're very confident in who they are, they're supported by their family and friends. Those people found it difficult.
0: Well, I had some friends that are some of the most confident people that I know come to me and say, Ben, I'm really struggling through this. And I would have attributed them as being some of the most confident, Mm -hmm. happy, embracing people of their sexuality, never even heard a flicker of emotion.
1: Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely right. And that's a very shared lived experience. And so we must never forget, never forget and never let it happen again.
0: Was there, was there any way of being able to stop that plebiscite? Like, do you think that it would have been better to have stopped the plebiscite and allowed for marriage
1: equality to come across maybe even a few years later? I mean, it wasn't like we sat back and let it happen. Let it happen. We, the High Court said, no, the government is in their right to call this. And there was moves to ignore it. But I think that would have been really bad. Once it had been called, once the, all the challenges to it had been ruled out, we had to fight it. And we fought it and we won. And we fought it and we won. But uh, there's still 39% of Australians that voted no. And we all know that. At some level, we all know that. And uh, there's a lot of pain, particularly, as I said, for the trans and non-binary folk during that, because it was really hard. They were the ones that were thrown under the bus. They were the ones, you know, rainbow families and trans people were put up as the slippery slope argument. And now it's a real time for the gay and the lesbian people to turn into allies, learn how to be an ally, how to be a good ally for the bi, the trans and the intersex community.
0: Some politicians that I'd spoken to, they thought it was a bit of a myth that maybe the community hadn't been affected as badly as we said that we were. What
1: do you have to say to those sorts of people? They need to look at the stats. They need to look at the switchboard call rate. They need to look at the the work that Beyond Blue and Lifeline did during that time and all the services. Uh, the Victorian government put over a million dollars into the mental health of the LGBTI community during that time. You can see every time the media talked about running a plebiscite or a postal survey, the the spike in calls and web chat stuff. You can't argue the data. It upset people. And anecdotally, we know, and I can tell you from my own experience, and you can from yours. It uh-huh. was a was a horrific month and a half, I think. I can't remember how long it was. It can go forever.
0: Can you give me three people that you thought made the biggest impact during that oh, time? Oh, no, I can't. Come on, just give no, me three. No, you no. Know, like, it's like that question where you say, oh, who? what celebrities or famous people dead or alive you'd have at a dinner party? Oh, that's easier. If you could have... <laughs> Let's do it this way, though. If we mention it like this. If you could have a dinner party with three people to celebrate okay. Well, let me, let
1: me say this. Who did I ring yesterday? I'll tell you who I rang yesterday or spoke to yesterday to say thank you. I rang Will Stark. Yeah. And I First person invited to your dinner party. <laughs> you know, I spoke to Ali Hogg and Anthony Walsh and I went to the 86. Because I think, I think Equal Love were there 10 years ago before john howard changed the legislation getting people on the streets and i think there's all sorts of spaces for advocacy i think there's room absolutely for what i do which is the behind doors advocacy and then there's the 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 people that get out on the street and you know paint the the signs and do the education in that space and i think that's a lot harder but we also need the people on the ground. And, and so they're the people that I think made – I mean, everybody, everybody. My mother who spoke to 10 people in a nursing home. I mean, everybody that had those conversations. And it's not it's – not it's just too hard to answer because it, it took all of us to get that vote.
0: And as we celebrate 12 months on, a year on, you know, we sort of can look at the learnings that we had to get marriage equality across the line. What are some of the things that we should use some of those processes for
1: to get across the line now? Well, I still think we need to be on the street. We need to be having the conversations. We need to be educating ourselves about what what the trans issues are and the non-binary issues are and the the issues for the intersex community and making sure that they get a voice. And when we need to, we need to be ringing our politicians and having those meetings and, you know, learning from what we did well and, and do it again. Clearly it worked. And, you know, one of my mentors, as I mentioned earlier, Reverend Dorothy McCray mcmahon she said, one of the things she taught me was revolutionary patience. It means you just keep working, you keep hard, and you will get there. So to answer your question about would I have waited, yes, I would have waited because the damage the postal survey did wasn't worth me being able to get married, frankly. I would have waited. But then that's my personal opinion for someone who is at the end of their life and they really wanted to get married. But the cost of that was so, so immense that, you know, I know it wasn't worth it. Still a few band-aids that we're definitely going to need to put on. Oh, absolutely. A lot of work. Have you got a
0: message for the queer community that would be listening to this now?
1: Stay strong. Stay connected. uh, Know that your experience is valued and listened to. And uh, thanks for having me. I'm very humbled to be your Commissioner for Gender and Sexuality. Well, we're very happy to have you. Thanks, Ben.
0: Thank you for joining us on Word for Word. Word for Word is presented and produced by Ben Norris from Australia's LGBTI radio station, Joy. Word for Word is distributed nationally to over 70 radio stations across the community radio network.